We just write functions and build stuff and it's great. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 228 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello. Jameson Dance. I think we lost Jameson. Oh, no, I didn't. No, he crashed. He crashed. That's I'm not... here. No, I'm... <gasps> Okay. Don't don't podcast and drive, right? No, he's skydiving, remember? Oh, that's right. Don't okay. skydive and Skype. I don't know. Anyway, okay. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, quick shout out, Angular Remote Conf and React Remote Conf coming up. Coming up. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that's Richard Feldman. Hello. Do you want to give us a brief introduction? We haven't had John for a while. Sure. Um, yeah, uh, so I work at No Red Inc., um, we are hiring, including remote people. And uh, we started using um, React when it first came out. Uh, and then we also have recently gotten very into Elm. And uh, as far as we know, we have the biggest Elm code base in production uh, of anyone. Uh, it's like 35,000 lines, 36,000 lines of Elm code at this point. Um, and uh, I'm writing a book, Elm in Action, for Manning Publications. That's available for early access and doing an Elm uh, front end master's workshop in September. That's like two days long. So that's, uh, I guess the long and short of me. Very cool. Um, just as an aside, if you are interested in that front end master's course, um, they, you can actually watch them live. If you're on their mailing list, uh, they announce them and then you can pay to be around when he actually gives it as opposed to watching it after the fact. So yeah, if you can't wait, then go over to front end masters and get on their mailing list. Also, if you want to ask questions in real time and stuff like that. No, nah, nobody does that. <laughs> All right. So um, we did a show on Elm. We had you and Evan on, what, a year ago? Yeah, so, something like that. It was like September 2015, back uh, when Evan worked at Prezi. <laughs> now yeah. he works with us. We got you early. Actually, yeah. by the time this releases, we'll be about right. Um, so do you want to kind of give us a quick introduction to elm and then people can go listen to the other episode if they really want to get a deeper discussion on it and then we'll probably dig into some other areas around elm absolutely um so elm is a compiled to javascript language um it's uh completely functional it's not object oriented at all um everything in elm is immutable everything uh no functions have side effects um it's just basically stateless functions and immutable data, and that's the whole language. Um, it's built to be really awesome at, uh, at being a functional language, and uh, probably the biggest selling point is maintainability. Um, so in that year that we've had Elm in production, um, we have not gotten a single runtime exception from our Elm code. That's still true. We're still waiting for patient zero, um, and it's just, the, the compiler um, is really, really good at identifying potential bugs and catching them before they can impact our end users. And that's even though we refactor our Elm code probably like three to four times as frequently as we refactor our JavaScript or Ruby code. Um, every time we do it, we make these big breaking changes, and then the compiler 
So it says you you forgot this, you forgot this, you forgot that, and then when it compiles, it typically just works with no regressions. Um, and so the the degree of maintainability we've gotten out of our Elm code compared to anything else we've used before has really just been unparalleled. It's been great. I know that Jameson's a big Elm user as well. Uh, Jameson, is there anything you want to add as far as what you like about Elm or your take on it? If he's busy, I can jump in with some questions I had. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, so we did talk about Elm, you know, a while ago, and I have played with it a little bit here and there. And I actually, um, with my mentor, I was looking at like some Haskell. We were kind of just doing this thing where we were comparing JavaScript um, to Elm to Haskell. And so I can't remember. I don't think we really got into details on the last episode. Um, but why would someone, if they were wanting to go from like React to something um, purely functional, why would they go to Elm versus like going all the way to something like Haskell or PureScript? Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, so I would say, uh, so Haskell, the, the way that you would use Haskell in the browser is uh, there's something called GHCJS, which compiles uh, Haskell code or like a subset of Haskell code um, to the browser. Um, basically, uh, the, the answer that I would give is basically user experience. Um, so it's true that all three of those are uh, functional programming languages, um, but Elm is, I think, users of all three languages would agree, Elm is the most focused on user experience. So it's not just that it catches these errors, but it's that the compiler really has had a ton of work put into it to make it so that these errors are user-friendly, so that they're helpful to you and you can look at the error and say, I understand what the problem is you know, as much of the time as possible. Um, so it's not just enough to say, this is what's wrong, it's to say this is what's wrong in a way where you can say, ah, and now I understand what I need to do to fix it. Um, and people who uh, use Elm and then end up on one of, uh, one of those other alternatives like PureScript or like GHCJS, um, typically what they are looking for is uh, basically the more like hardcore functional abstractions. Um, they want, they, they look at Elm and they say, I understand that this will make my code safe and reliable, but I want more abstractions. I want more um, like ways to express things uh, in ways that uh, sort of like Elm's philosophy is more like, let's focus on um, simplicity and, uh, and just not having abstractions unless we really think they're going to add a lot of value and focusing on sort of the, the minimal set of like the, what makes functional programming pleasant to use, what makes it reliable and uh, not so much um, asking the question, you know, how can we add more abstractions, but rather adding, asking the question, um, what abstractions do we not need? Like, what's the minimal set of abstractions that's going to get us to a good user experience? So I think if you love abstractions and you want more, um, that's probably why you would choose something like PureScript or GHCJS over Elm. And if you're more interested in just baseline user experience, you're probably going to be happier with Elm. I'd, I'd like to give a perspective on that, too. It seems like, to me, Elm is the first language. That, there are a lot of languages in this space, like Richard said. Um, there's the, the Haskell and JavaScript stuff. There's PureScript. Um, there, there are a few others. And Elm seems like the first one to achieve some degree of mainstream success. And I think that is because of its ruthless focus on user experience and, and 
the people that come from Haskell miss things and the people that come to JavaScript have a much easier time learning it because it's missing those things that the people that come from Haskell miss. Uh, so, so to me, it feels like Evan's made some, some pretty wise design choices to say, like, yes, you can add these abstractions. There's a cost to every abstraction. We want to focus on the things that will provide the most value while still um, making this appealing to kind of the, the broad mass of developers, not the people who are hardcore, like Richard said. That makes a lot of sense. Like the experience I had, now granted, I did not go very deep into Haskell and I was really just reading code, not writing it. But I was honestly like very surprised as we were comparing them, like the the Haskell, like as I compared JavaScript to Elm to Haskell, you know, there was a bigger gap between Haskell and JavaScript, but it wasn't so big that I didn't like couldn't grasp, you know, what the code was doing. Um, whereas like the Elm code did look a little bit more JavaScript-y, it was a little more verbose, but um, but yeah, I'm sure it's much easier to get started. In. Has that story changed much over the last year? Has it gotten easier? Has it gotten harder? Oh, I would definitely say it's gotten easier. Um, actually, with every release, uh, Evan makes more and more improvements to the the usability of the um, of the compiler and like the the detail of the error messages. Like literally right now in my inbox is uh, uh, an update on a GitHub issue where Evan is posting screenshots of ways in which he uh, improved compiler error messages for the next release, like 0 0.18 um, of Elm, and it's like both trying to zero in more on just like giving you the minimal set of information you need to reproduce the error and like trimming away the excess stuff that's just noise and also adding more hints with links to here are, how, here are ways that you could potentially resolve this error. Um, and I don't see that changing really because like Jameson said, I mean, it's like a huge focus of the language is usability. So what has changed over the last year? Well, the biggest thing is uh, is in Elm 0 0.17, um, it, it switched away from uh, the previous sort of foundational um, idea of the language, I guess. It was Everything was based around uh, signals and FRP, so functional reactive programming. Um, and the first, I guess, uh, everything up till 0 0.16 um, – based everything around signals, and in 0 0.17, uh, instead, everything is based around the Elm architecture. Um, sort of the history of how that happened is that basically uh, Evan had these ideas for if we design a language for building user interfaces and it has these characteristics, like everything's immutable, all the functions are pure, you know, stateless functions, um, then certain things will be very reliable and nice to use and we can sort of build in a, in a good way. Um, he also had some ideas about how to make state really reliable and as, as, um, reduce a lot of the uh, error-prone problems that come with other state management systems. Um, and as it turned out, uh, signals were a you know a way that had a lot of history, a lot of you know papers written about it. Um, so it, it made sense as a good starting point. But over time, um, it sort of uh, as people started building more and more applications, it sort of revealed that there was this really common pattern for how people use signals. And pretty much the best way to design your application was to use these signals in a particular way, which Evan called the Elm architecture. And uh, at some point, it became clear that signals had gone from this usefully flexible abstraction to just 
boilerplate where you could end up doing something worse than the Elm architecture very easily. And so Evan said, okay, well, what's <laughs> sort of what's the way to get the best user experience? And the answer was just make the Elm architecture the fundamental unit. Just have the compiler focus on that and just take signals out entirely. Um, and this was a usability win for several reasons, not least of which was that um, when beginners were learning the language, I mean, I saw this over and over again, signals were just the most difficult to learn part of it. It was just the thing that the most people struggled with um, as beginners. And so not having to learn that and instead just learning here's how to architect your program and having that be the first class thing, not only reduced learning curve, but also made it so that it unlocked um, additional sort of like tooling and capability options that are even now just still in the process of, of being explored because there are so many different things that can be done now that um, they don't all have to be done in terms of signals. So I would say that's the biggest change that's happened in the past year. Can you talk a little bit about how the community reacted to that change? I, um, my impression was Elm 16 was kind of an inflection point where a lot of people who hadn't looked at Elm started hearing about it and started looking at it. And there can be some temptation then to, to try and capitalize on success, you know, and, and making a, a pretty major breaking change in some ways goes against the common wisdom of like, to, we have to show people this is dependable and that they can build on top of it and it'll, it'll work for them. Um, so can you talk about the, the thought that went into uh, kind of managing the community throughout this decision? Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's interesting that you mentioned, uh, you know, showing things, showing that it's uh, dependable. Um, one of the most striking differences between Elm and JavaScript is the feeling that you get when you need to make a big change to your code. And to me, a big part of the dependability of Elm is the fact that I can make a big change like that and have my code still work afterwards just because the compiler found all the potential problems. So in JavaScript, if you're like, hey, we changed the semantics of how functions work and now they're defined in a totally different way or objects or prototypal inheritance. If JavaScript made, you know, like TC39 comes out with this crazy new thing and it's, it's like radically different, um, I'm really scared to change my code. Even if I have really good test coverage, I'm just really scared that I'm going to forget something or there's going to be some unintended consequence. It's going to break your tests. So well, <laughs> you're doing yeah, that. <laughs> Well, that's true, right. So first it'll break my tests, and then I have to fix my tests. Hopefully I do a good job fixing my tests. And then, right, And then, but then there's always the question of like, well, did my tests account for this possibility? Like even with 100% code coverage, that just tells you all the code is, you know, being exercised, like some test is running it. Doesn't tell me that it's actually, you know, checking that the logic is sound. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I'm just scared to make big changes like that in JavaScript. But in Elm, I'm just not. I, I feel fearless in a way that almost feels like it ought to be irresponsible, except that it's just never in practice. <laughs> like, I just keep making, you know, big changes to be like, this will be nicer if I change this API and make this big breaking change to my code and do this overhaul. And then afterwards, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's nicer, and it all still worked, and it didn't have a bunch of regressions. Um, sure. And so a big upgrade like that um, from 16 to 17 is kind of the same thing, where it's like, on the one hand, depending on how your code was architected before, that could have been a, a very large change. And I think that's where uh, most people in the community uh, reacted one way or another, depending on how their code was architected. Yeah. Um, 
But as far as dependability goes, it's almost like an exercise in demonstrating one of Elm's strengths, which is that you can upgrade from um, from you know one totally different paradigm to another and actually have it end up you know everything still works. Um, to your question of uh, how did the community react? Um, I think basically people broke down into three camps. Um, one was people who were like, uh, you know, had sort of already been using the Elm architecture um, and had been using signals in sort of the, the recommended way, the, the sort of best practice way. And they were like, oh, yeah, this is going to be nice. Like, obviously, you know, why, why do we have this boilerplate? Let's just get rid of it. Um, Two was people who had been using signals in uh, unusual ways, in, in sort of uh, like going, uh, deviating from the Elm architecture. Um, and of course, uh, their reaction was was more negative. Um, they were you not- broke it, right? Yeah, well, it's it's like, uh, I mean, of course, like it's, it's a breaking change. So <laughs> it's gonna break stuff for everybody. Um, but the, the question was more like, what does the process look like of transitioning from what you had to the new version of the compiler? And if you stuck to the Elm architecture, it was a pretty mechanical change. Like, I remember going through, and, and honestly, like, a huge part of what I was changing was just, like, deleting arguments from functions because I didn't need to pass addresses around anymore. Um, but if you were not doing that, um, then you had a more serious, uh, you know, architectural change to make. And a lot of people were, understandably, you know, uh, not pleased about that. You know, they, they didn't want to have to make an architectural change. Um, and so, uh, and then the third group of people is basically beginners uh, who were overwhelmingly uh, across the board just relieved because they were like, that's great. Whenever I looked at the signal stuff, I was really intimidated by it. And I didn't know how I was going to get through that part of learning Elm. And I'm really relieved that now I don't have to. Um, so uh, as far as managing the community aspect of that, um, there was a lot of just like, uh, especially on the Elm Slack um, it's like uh, elmlang.herokuapp.com if you want to get on that. Um, there was a lot of people just saying, hey, this broke my Elm code. Uh, what do I do? And other people saying, can you paste me some, you know, some code snippets to let's see if we can figure out how to refactor what you've got into what works in the new world. Um, and so on the one hand, you know, the people who did feel like you know, this, was, this was a huge problem for them, um, it was a huge change. Um, it was also pretty cool to watch the community kind of come together and help each other out and, and, you know, say like, Hey, like this is clearly a better world. Like this is clearly worth the cost of what we're doing, which I think, you know, on the whole is definitely the, the community's um, reaction and, uh, and sort of helping each other, you know, get through that, those who were impacted more than others. Uh, but at this point, I honestly, uh, it seems like just looking at the, the Slack and the, um, like the mailing list, uh, Elm discuss, uh, Pretty much everybody's uh, has moved on. It's like uh, I, I see almost no um, people. There mentioned. are no protesters, just like kind of clinging to their their barricade. Oh, I mean, the, <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't say that there were like uh, like a lot of like protesters. I mean, some people were like, "Hey, you know, this is going to be a big change for me." Like, uh, I, I understand why it was like you know the right decision or whatever, but but man, this sucks. I don't want to have to do this work. Um, as long as everyone's were, saying make Elm great again, I think you can. <laughs> right? Yeah. But there, I mean, there, there were very few people who were saying like, this is a mistake. Let's go back to signals. I mean, there, obviously there were, it wasn't zero people, but it was, uh, it was like very, very few. Um, overwhelmingly, it seemed like people were like, yep, this is, this is the price of progress. 
it seems like this is just kind of another demonstration of the Elm design philosophy, which is make make the wrong thing impossible. And that's kind of at the language level. And it's now at the application level as well, where before you could use the Elm architecture, you could not use it. Um, and, and then once Evan decided it was a good idea, then that's the only idea. And uh, I think that can be really powerful. It, it turns out it's a lot easier to write tools for, for one thing than for anything. Yeah, you know, that's, that's funny. Another thing uh, that I guess has happened in the past year is uh, we've got our first conference coming up, uh, ElmConf, in September, um, co-hosted with Strangeloop. And uh, that's actually the title of my talk there is uh, Making Impossible States Impossible. Uh, that's, yeah, that's the thing you hear in functional programming, right? Like make the make uh, what is it erroneous states impossible to represent? Kind of in the typed functional programming world, they talk about that. Yeah, it's it's sort of a advanced level. Um, at least the 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 talk I'm planning on giving is sort of like an advanced, like targeted at people who already know Elm. Because yeah, I mean, when I first started using Elm, I sort of reflexively used it in sort of a like JavaScript, but better in certain ways, um, <laughs> kind of way where I, I was like, okay, here's what I'd write in JavaScript. Let me mentally translate how I'd you know write that in Elm. Um, and as it turns out, uh, I was only using you know part of its power. Uh, there were a lot of techniques that I didn't realize I could have been using um, that could have made my code even better and easier to maintain. Um, I just didn't realize it. And then uh, as I interacted with the community more and, and talked to more people. And I kind of picked up some um, tips and tricks for uh, how to make my code even more awesome. And now I've, I've sort of uh, transitioned from that beginner phase into sort of like, ah, now I, I understand that I can, I can actually do even more than I realized with the same tools that I had on day one. So I don't want to, I want to make sure I'm not monopolizing stuff. I have more questions, but I want to make sure everyone else has time to talk to. What do you got, panel? One thing I'm wondering about is you talked about tools a bunch, and it sounds like there are tools for testing Elm and tools for uh, compiling and writing Elm. I'm, I'm wondering, is there like an IDE that people generally use to write Elm, or are they using a real editor like Emacs, or are they going after some other <laughs> method? And you know, generally, what's the approach for structuring an Elm app? So first of all, as a longtime Vim user, I want to let that Emacs comment slide. But he's <laughs> an experienced Emacs troll. He, he never misses a chance to slip that in. Um, yeah, no. So I mean, people use all sorts of stuff. Uh, I actually use Atom with Vim Mode Plus. Uh, before that, I used Sublime. Uh, I've also used like actual standard Vim. I've used all of those with Elm. They all have you know different plugins and stuff. Um, Emacs has its own plugin. Um, there are some. Uh, there's some IDE support. Uh, as I understand it, um, IntelliJ has some Elm support. And also, I've actually heard, I've not used it, but I've heard Lighttable um, actually has the most impressive, like, whiz-bang Elm features. Like, it's got some really cool stuff um, that none of the other plugins happen. I have, um, I have not actually personally experienced it yet, but I've heard it's really awesome, and I need to check it out sometime. So now that we're back to more questions that would probably be geared towards people who haven't had a lot of experience with Elm, one thing that I don't remember us talking about in the past, and I feel like now is a good time to talk about it since, you know, um, like I know uh, Jameson was doing some stuff with Elm McCauley, and, you know, Richard, you have had Elm in production for a really long time now. So if people were looking to get 
this going on a new project, realistically speaking, if I was going to build something from scratch with React or Angular um, or Elm, what do you think, like if, if you were going to a manager, what is a realistic time frame to get like, you know, a couple devs on board and to train them and to get an app that would be equivalent to an app in React? Like what is the time difference there? Realistically, a, realistically. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, um, that question I think has changed over time. Um, and the reason I say that is because I think the biggest uh, answer to that question is, is sort of like, how much re or how many resources do you have access to? Um, so uh, I can tell you, like from personal experience, I mean, when we hire somebody new, uh, and they don't know Elm, which is totally normal. Like when we we expect that when we hire a new developer, junior, senior, whatever, um, they're not going to know any Elm, and we'll just teach them. Um, if they're just doing Elm stuff like their whole first week, that's like they're they're pretty much up and running by the end of that week. Like they can they can go write Elm code unsupervised. Um, but uh, we're a company that's full of Elm developers. Um, <laughs> you know, we have like uh, sixteen programmers, and you know, at least half of them have made like production Elm commits. Um, and 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 most of us are you know doing front end work, are just doing Elm. You know, ninety five percent of the time we're writing front end code. Uh, if you're at a company where nobody's using Elm, um, then obviously you don't have that same, you know, access to the, those same resources. So when people have questions, uh, basically your best bet is to hop on the Elm Slack and ask somebody on there. And I think you'll, you'll have a good rate of getting responses. Um, whereas a year ago, the Elm Slack didn't even exist yet. Like there was an IRC channel, but it wasn't nearly as active as, as what the Elm Slack has been, um, especially in the past year. And so I think uh, I can't really, you know, say what that would be like for somebody else um, because, I mean, I, I kind of know what my experience has been um, and I would have to guess what it would be for other people. I think if it's a week for us, it's probably more like a month for other companies. Um, but it also depends on uh, what the whoever the, the first person is to introduce Elm um, has done with it on the side. Uh, so when we introduced Elm at No Red Ink, I had been using it extensively on the side to make DreamWriter, as the side project I did. Um, and so I'd already had a couple of months of, you know, just personal experience using Elm building stuff with it. Um, and the other big thing that, that we did right, I think, um, that made it a lot less scary and a lot less risky was just that we introduced it incrementally. Um, so we didn't actually start, We like you, you gave the example of starting a new project, which I think is sort of uh, what most people intuitively gravitate towards. But we've actually heard in the community over and over that um, that's a, it very rarely succeeds. Almost always when people get Elm in production, it's by doing it incrementally. Like they say, not we're going we're gonna to have a new project in Elm, but rather, okay, let's take some part of some page that like we need to make some change to. We're like, uh, this part of this page has some complicated business logic and we need to change it. Rather than making the change by... Uh, just changing the JavaScript code we have, let's just rewrite what we have in Elm, then it's going to be easier to manage, and then uh, introduce Elm to just that page. Um, and there's actually a blog post, I think it's the top blog post on the Elm website right now, um, but it's called uh, Using Elm at Work, or no, How to Use Elm at Work. 
And it's basically just talking about, uh, it gives the specific example of React and like, here's how to take a React component and just drop an Elm, you know, application into, into there. Um, and it's, it's kind of strange that, uh, you know, the, the intuition of, oh, let's, let's wait for a new project. Let's wait for a greenfield project. Um, let's do something big, uh, is, is kind of the opposite of, of what tends to be the most successful because, um, as it turns out, usually what ends up happening is one of two things. One is uh, you sort of bite off more than you can chew where you have, um, you know, nobody on the team is really experienced in Elm yet. And uh, you have this whole big project that's now riding on this thing where nobody really knows how to use it well. Um, or uh, on the flip side, you just keep waiting forever because you can never find a project that's sort of uh, big enough to, to justify using a different technology and yet small enough and low enough risk that you don't have to worry if it turns out that, you know, people don't get it or, or you know, for whatever reason, uh, you decide to, to, you know, backtrack and use something else. Um, so, yeah, small incremental things seems to be the key. That totally makes sense. So you could do um, very similar to, like, the talk that Ryan Florence gave about, you know, don't rewrite React. You're saying you could do pretty much the same thing with Elm. Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, you know, it's like if you if you put your mind to it, if you're like, all right, this week on, you know, we're going to start on Monday and on Friday, we're going to have some Elm code in production. I think any team can do that. And once you've done that, you now have a very low risk investment that you can grow from. Like you can say, now we have this in production. We've got the build pipeline sorted out. We've learned at least enough Elm to do this one small thing, probably just from following that blog post. And then from there, you can say, okay, you know, did we like that experience? Was that good? Do we want more of this? If so, cool. Now we can expand it and do a little bit more in Elm, do a little bit more in Elm. And that's exactly how, I mean, when we started, we had just one part of one page using Elm. And now we've grown that all the way to 36,000 lines of Elm code. And it's now the second most common language in our entire code base after Ruby on the back end. Like all of that is just with this one, we planted this one tiny seed and just like, let's get it in production and see how it goes. And then just grew it from there. And that's really all it takes. Sounds like a challenge for a lot of people. <laughs> so Amy, you asked how long would it take? And, yeah. and what I'm hearing is two weeks. <laughs> the standard answer for when anyone asks how long does something take and you don't know i mean i think it depends on uh on, on where you want to get to right i mean is it a, is it like how long to get something in production i honestly think that you anyone can do that in about one week if, if you're if you have somebody working on that all week i think pretty much any team can pull that off um and honestly probably less than that uh, i'm just but, saying two weeks is my is my standard answer <laughs> Yeah, someone don't, asks, uh, how long does this hard thing that you don't know how long it actually takes take? <laughs> you just say two weeks. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, like that's a really cool. solid story for, for getting started with it. I like that. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with a company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. I, I have a question about... Uh... 
so you mentioned at the beginning that the language is built out of stateless functions, pure functions that don't have side effects. And I, I hear this a lot, but there's this kind of like sly wink you have to do because like you can do side effects, right? Like you can talk to a database. Otherwise, your program can't do anything. So can you talk about how, I mean, pure functions can like sort an array in memory and then do nothing with it. If that's all you have. Uh, but at some point, do something impure and, and to, to change state and affect the outside world. Can you talk about how you do that in Elm? Yeah, totally. Um, so the key idea here is that uh, when you write Elm code, all you are writing is pure functions and immutable data. But the Elm runtime, which is sort of a black box where you can send data to it and tell it to do things, it can actually run side effects. So the distinction here is that I can write, for example, so Elm's architecture is based around this idea of model, view, and update. Uh, so model is a piece of data. View is a function that returns a description of how you want the DOM to look. So it uses a virtual DOM like React, except faster. Um, <laughs> we actually have benchmarks about that. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Elm's the, currently the fastest one we've found. Um, but um, uh, so the, uh, and then the update function, which is um, uh, responsible for returning any changes that you want made to your model, which is your one single source of truth, and also uh, what are called commands. And a command is something that the Elm runtime can uh, translate into some sort of side effect. So the important thing here is that in JavaScript, for example, you can write a line of JavaScript code that says, I want you to go out and change this value in local storage, or I want you to go out and run this uh, Ajax request right now in this line of code. In Elm, you don't do that. In Elm, all you do in your update function is if you want to do something with local storage, you say, okay, in, under these circumstances, my update function is going to return a command, which is just a plain value, that says, hey, Elm Runtime, I want you to go do stuff to local storage. Or, hey, Elm Runtime, I want you to go do Ajax. Now, the important distinction there, uh, it matters for a couple of reasons. One is that, first of all, it makes things easier to test. Um, if you want to just say, like, you know, uh, the, the great thing about pure functions is that you never have to do any mocking. You can always just be like, okay, uh, I want to call this, and then I want to look at what it returned. You never have to say, oh, well, sometime in the middle of that function, it's possible that it will do an Ajax request, so I need to go and like proxy my uh, you know, XHR object or my local storage or something like that to spy on it and see if it gets called. You never have to do that. You're always just looking at the return value. But the other more important thing that it does is it means that when you're looking at a given function, um, you need to uh, sort of in JavaScript, you need to account for all these different possibilities. So if I'm calling a, a particular function in JavaScript, and it's like, oh, uh, maybe this function is modifying local storage. Maybe it's doing a network request. If you end up with local storage in a weird state where you, you read something out of local storage, and you're like, hold on, why did this happen? I don't know why local storage now has this, this wrong value. Um, any function in your entire code base could be a potential culprit for that. Um, you have to look at every single function. You can't rule any of them out easily. Whereas in Elm, there's only one possible culprit, and it's the update function. And so, granted, update can call other functions, but because uh, Elm's type system records what values functions take and what values functions return, you can very, very quickly narrow it down 
um, by just looking at what it takes and what it returns. So we talked about uh, how update returns a command, and a command represents, I want to talk to local storage. So if I have written this function, it says, this function takes a string and returns a user object. I know, just from, just from knowing what that function takes and what it returns, it's not possible in Elm for that function to do anything with local storage, for it to do anything with Ajax, any kind of side effect. Because the only possible way to instruct the Elm runtime to perform a side effect is by having a function return a command. So it lets me rule out all of these potential culprits. I don't even have to look at the implementation of the function. I can just look at the type and say, oh, okay, it's not this one, it's not this one, not this one. Not this. I can just really very quickly narrow down the potential source of bugs. That makes sense. Cool. Um, another question I had, you've talked about um, kind of the Elm architecture and how it's this pattern for organizing your applications. Um, but do you have any... Uh, guidelines or things you've learned about about just kind of broad patterns for organizing functional code bases? I feel like there's a ton of um, literature and knowledge out there for how you build large OO apps in a maintainable way. And, and in the functional world, it seems like they focus a lot on abstractions or functions in the small. But the question of what do you do in the large is kind of like, functional programming is great. Keep keep doing it, and and there's not as solid of an answer. It feels like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would agree with your assessment. I think that there is a lot more literature on how to structure OO apps, and I think in the functional world, there's there is sort of more of an attitude of like, don't worry about it, just build your stuff, and it's going to be yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. Func functions are great. Therefore, if you have a large app and it's made out of functions, your large app will be great. That seems like the attitude right. you encounter. Yeah, so uh, I can speak to that because we we have a um, you know a very large code base now. We've got students answering millions of questions. Actually, we crossed the billion questions answered mark uh, pretty recently. So yeah, we we do have a large app uh, in a purely functional language, and um, basically we kind of took this same attitude of like let's not worry about it. Let's just write functions and build stuff and uh, and see what happens as it scales, and maybe it'll be great. And our experience has been that, yeah, we just write functions and build stuff, and it's great. Um, so the biggest takeaway there is that it seems to matter a lot more in OO than in FP. And I actually think that the lack of um, sort of like community documentation and talking about how do you scale a big FP application, um, the reason it's lacking is not so much that nobody's solved it, but the fact that it's just not a big problem in practice, like at least as far as a language like Elm goes, I mean, I can't speak, I've never maintained a large code base in another functional language, but the reality is that when I look at our problems and I look at problems that beginners have, it actually seems like most beginners seem to run into more problems by trying to reflexively solve this problem up front than by just ignoring it. Like what we did is essentially we took the sort of the basic application structure that that Evan wrote up for like to do MVC is like okay model view and update great and let's just add cases as we need um, and just keep building it up from there and our experience has been great I mean that's that's really all we did and we sort of said okay well when we need to split things off we'll just make a new file and and like put functions in there and then call it from the other file and. As far as we can tell, that pretty much works indefinitely. Um, 
as far as scaling an application goes. Granted, there are other questions about um, how to make uh, libraries that I think uh, there there is um, a lot more learned intuition than there are resources that sort of spell out how to write good functional libraries, because uh, especially in a, um, a language like Elm that has a, an ML-style module system. Um, but as far as scaling an application goes, I mean, I am dead serious when I say that if you just start with to do MVC and just keep adding code and don't worry about it, you're probably going to have a great time. And if you do worry about it up front and say, I need, in particular, the most pain that I see, the most user pain that I see from new users now that signals are gone, um, is the following situation. Somebody comes to Elm from React in particular um, and tries to use Elm, uh, tries to organize their Elm code in the same way that they organize their React code, they have a really bad time. And the reason is that React is all about saying, okay, everything's a component. Components can have their own state. Whenever I'm going to make a new thing, I'm going to make a new component with its own state. And that's sort of like the, the fundamental metaphor of React. That's, that's really what they push. I mean, you read the React docs, from intro to React, the word component appears over and over and over again. And React really encourages you to think in those terms. Whereas in Elm, it's like, okay, you got your model, single source of truth. You got your view that translates a model into DOM nodes. And you got your update function, and that's for changing the model and performing side effects. And that's it. And you don't think about splitting things up into local chunks of self-contained state, i.e. components, until you absolutely have to. Like for the first six months, I would say, um, of our using Elm, we basically had uh, one component per page, as it were. Like, we, like each page had, had its own state um, because obviously like a, a web page is relatively self-contained. Um, and then there was one exception to that. Like there was one really, really complicated page where we had like the page would bring up a dialogue and that dialogue was a form with like a dozen different fields and none of them had anything to do with the rest of the page. It was all self-contained in that dialogue. That one thing we gave its own state. Every other page had just one state atom and that was it. Um, before when those pages were in React, I mean, it was just nested state after nested state. It was like components all over the place because that's what React encourages you to do. Um, but it's not what Elm encourages you to do. And I think uh, coming in with leftover intuitions from React or from other you know, JavaScript paradigms that encourage you to think in terms of, okay, I really need to figure out how I'm going to split up my state and make each thing self-contained and decide which component owns this state um, is, is really a recipe for it's it's really swimming upstream in Elm. Um, you're you're swimming against the current in the same way that um, if you went to React and tried to use React exactly the same way you use Elm, which would be to say uh, I want to make my React components. None of them use state. Uh, they all just use props, and that's it. Um, and uh, and in fact, they're all stateless functional components, and there's just like one state atom, and that's it. Um, you can do that, but you're really swimming against the current of what React wants you to do, like what it's designed for. And I don't, I think it's it's difficult to realize that um, because it seems like uh, if you're switching from one virtual DOM paradigm to another, it's sort of intuitive that you would expect to be able to just use the same thing that you're used to and just have it work the same way. Um, and I, I think uh, there there are a lot. Elm and React are a lot more. Uh, different than they are similar when it comes to state management, and people don't always realize that on day one. 
That's a great answer. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I got more. I don't want. I don't want to monopolize though. Okay, I'm going to monopolize. <laughs> Go um, for it. <laughs> so we've we've talked a lot about Elm, um, and and the ease of switching to it, and and the ease of kind of integrating it into your project. Let's say I, I just feel like I can't sell it. I'm I'm in a team that's kind of hostile to the idea for whatever reason. Uh, I like the ideas of Elm, but but using it right this second isn't a great fit for me. Um, what can I, as just a, a JavaScript developer, learn from it that I can take back into JavaScript? W with an eye on the idea that you just said, where some of the stuff is like you learn it and it works well in Elm and it might not work in JavaScript, but are there things that that uh, cross that barrier? Um, I think that there are, but I think that there are things that are not particular to Elm so much as they are... Um, just sort of uh, the, the the category of language that Elm fits into. Um, so, for example, um, Elm has a type checker, and that prevents a lot of bugs. Uh, and the way that it does those is by does that is by avoiding type mismatches. Um, one way that you can avoid type mismatches is by using a, a type check language like Elm. Um, and uh, you know, but th there's there's lots of other type check languages. In fact, there are quite a few uh, ways that you can type check your JavaScript. Right? There's TypeScript. There's Flow. I mean, it's it's not something. Um, <laughs> there's even, as I recall, type annotations in the Google Closure compiler that you can get from uh, comments. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's essentially, um, you know, that if you write your JavaScript in a way where uh, you sort of avoid using some of the things that JavaScript lets you do that are maybe a little too clever and maybe a little bit more error prone than they are nice, um, such as uh, you know passing a string for an argument sometimes and then other times passing it as an object. Uh, you know something like that sounds pretty innocuous when you say it just like that, but uh, in terms of what that makes you think of and, and how defensively you need to check all of your arguments to, to see what types of things they might be passing in and what kind of API surprises uh, you might end up with, um, in a lot of cases, I think you're better off just saying, nope, this always takes an object or this always takes a string, and it never takes either one or the other. Um, so sort of writing your code, pretending that uh, you don't, uh, you know, uh, have access to those features or, or pretending that you have a type checker um, you know that that would prevent you from doing those things uh, in a lot of cases just makes your life better um, when I do write JavaScript code I sort of <laughs> pretend that I have a type checker even when I don't um, other things uh, would just be like um, the more pure functions you can write the better uh, if you you know like they, they really are reliable in ways that functions that do side effects in the middle um, are not, and they're easier to test in ways that functions that do side effects in the middle are not. Um, and I think that uh, I actually gave a talk at uh, ReactiveConf last year uh, called Effects as Data, and it was about how you can essentially, uh, in JavaScript, um, you know, write your code in this style where you are uh, separating out all of your side effects into uh, something like the Elm runtime, except sort of <laughs> I create it by hand in the talk. Um, such that you can write all of your functions in terms of you know pure stateless functions that just return data, which makes them nice and easy to test, and then um, uh, just have your sort of uh, your your black box runtime execute them. 
That might be a little extreme, though. Maybe, maybe that's not, like, I've never actually tried, you know, doing that in JavaScript. Like, Elm, it's all built in, so you don't have to do any extra work for it. Uh, but in JavaScript, you would have to go pretty far out of your way to do that. And I don't honestly know that uh, I would want to do that in practice. <laughs> all right. Well, um, Jameson had to run off to the airport, and I know that some of the rest of us have some time constraints, so I'm going to push us into picks. Uh, but before we go into picks, uh, do you want to give us a quick plug for anything you're working on or if your company's hiring or how to follow you on Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, totally. Uh, RT Feldman on Twitter. Um, our company is hiring. We, we do uh, lots of Elm production. We also do Rails on the back end. We're getting into Elixir. Uh, we hire remote. Um, we don't expect any Elm experience on day one. And this is my favorite job that I've ever had, including the companies that I started. <laughs> so oh, wow. uh, you should absolutely work here. Um, it's uh, noredinc.com slash jobs. Uh, also, yeah, two things that I'm working on. Um, oh, yeah. Also, you should check out the Elm conference in September. It's elm-conf.us. Um yeah, two things that I'm working on. Uh, Elm in Action, the book from Manning Publications. Uh, it's in early access, so you can buy uh, buy it right now, um, although not all the chapters are out yet. <laughs> and uh, uh, the other one is uh, Front End Masters, doing a two-day Elm workshop. So it's a total of 16 hours um, on uh, uh, that's in September. So I guess depending on when this airs, it may have already happened. <laughs> I think it'll be a close thing. Well, you can... So, Hopefully but, you can still get on there. <laughs> yeah, so if you're listening, check it out now because you probably have like a week. All right, well, let's go ahead and get to picks. Um, Amy, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. So I have one that I checked out last night. Um, if you, I don't know when this is coming out, so it might be old news by then, but it's just a really short Medium article. But uh, I was like absolutely floored when I read this, um, and it's um, by Jordan Scales, who's a developer at Khan Academy. Um, and he just kind of started digging into his node modules directory and the stuff that he found is pretty shocking. Um, just like really random things that when you like npm install express or ember um, and what's the other one on here, Babel, the kind of stuff that will uh, land in your project is pretty crazy. So uh, if anything, <clears throat> I, you know, it's kind of like educational that you should be Maybe cognizant of what you're installing, but also kind of good for a laugh. So I will put a link for that in the show notes, and that's it for me. All right. Um, I'm looking around because uh, I have been really super busy this week, and I'm like, I, I don't know what to pick. I uh, can get I can dig in some dig through if you want. <laughs> you can what? I have I can come up with some more if you want. Oh, go ahead. Okay, so another one, uh, since we're low on picks this week, I am going to pick apple cider vinegar. Uh, I feel like I, I don't know if it was like another podcast or maybe just on Twitter someone was talking about this, but I have been, it's like, you have to buy the specific brand. I take this uh, Bragg's Organic Apple Cider Vinegar, and I take like a tablespoon with every meal. Um, and again, like, you know, I always pick these health things and people might laugh at me, but uh, if nothing else, like maybe the taste is like invigorating because it tastes pretty awful, but I feel like it tastes, uh, or I feel like it helps. Um, the basic premise of it is, you know, it'll affect uh, the pH because it's so acidic and it's supposed to help you burn calories that way. So, uh, or, or by, um, combating like the GI index. So, 
that will be another pick in addition to my blog post pick. Awesome. You know what? I just thought of something. So this Friday, which is in like three days, uh, we're going to be getting a foreign exchange student in our house. Um, I remember you talking about that. That's so cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we got it worked out and booked out uh, through none other than Jen Eames, who is Joe's, Joe Eames' wife. So um, we're super excited. Uh, the company is, um, it's, they, they say it's Setusa and it's C-E-T-U-S-A. Um, but anyway, uh, we're really excited to have her come and stay with us for basically the school year. Um, she's coming from an area of Italy that I actually lived in for five months. And so it's, it's going to be kind of fun to, for me to practice my Italian and I guess for her to practice her English, but, but yeah, so, uh, I'm going to pick that even though we haven't done it yet. Uh, Richard, what are your picks? Yeah. So, uh, I'm going to second Amy's pick of that article about node modules. That was awesome. That's um, crazy. Absolutely crazy. I thought <laughs> you were... it, like, it's, it's like mildly infuriating. <laughs> I thought you were going to pick the apple cider vinegar again. I know. I was kind of hopeful there, too. <laughs> <laughs> I've never tried apple cider vinegar, but uh, no, I, that actually reminded me. Like I, When I was reading that, I was like, I'm so glad that Elm has its own package manager that <laughs> is amazing and enforces semantic versioning automatically and crazy stuff like that. And Yeah, it doesn't do any of that. But um, uh, So my first pick is a movie that I saw recently. Uh, it's from 2013. It's called In a World. And uh, it's it's basically about the phrase that you hear so often in uh, like trailers for movies, and especially it's like it was in a world, and then you know it, in a world where something something something, um, and the the whole movie is about uh, voice actors, and uh, it's a comedy, um, really funny and like really unusual movie that I I've never really seen anything quite like it. Um, so check that out. The movie's called In a World. Um, uh, second pick would be a blog post that I wrote a while ago and recently updated um, called Building a Live Validated Sign-Up Form in Elm. And uh, it's basically a walkthrough, assuming that you don't know any Elm at all, you just know JavaScript and don't know anything about functional programming, and it uh, essentially takes you through building a live validated sign-up form with uh, Ajax and the whole nine. So. Um, yeah, uh, those would be my two picks. Very cool. Well, thank you for coming. Uh, we'll go yeah. ahead and wrap this up, and we'll catch everyone next week. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye.